The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Let us turn together to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, page 860 in your Pew Bible, continuing in this wonderful Gospel account of Christ. At chapter 4, verse 31, to the end of the chapter, hear God's Word. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. I have always loved the stories that center on the legend of King Arthur, who was probably a historical figure in some way, but lots of legends have built up around him, especially the story of the sword in the stone. Many movies have portrayed that event when the young Arthur, uh, seeming to be just an ordinary, normal boy or young man, stumbles upon this strange stone with a sword stuck in it. And Arthur, needing a sword for the knight he is serving at the time, pulls out the, the sword, thinking no one would mind if he used it and borrowed it for a while. Little does he know that the sword is Excalibur. 
the famous sword that many have tried to pull from the stone before he did it, uh, because whoever should do so would be named King of England. Of course, Arthur does the deed and suddenly finds himself acclaimed as king. You see, according to this legend, the one rightful and true king would be known and his power and authority would be displayed by this act of pulling the sword out of the stone. An interesting legend. But not just legend is the display of the authority of the true King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, the God-man, who came into history in lowliness and in humility, but when the time came for him to begin his public ministry, we see the gospel accounts bear testimony to the great power and authority of this king robed in humility in his incarnation. We see the display of his authority authority in his teaching and his authority over the spirit world and in his authority over the physical world in his miracles. And those will be our three main points. Jesus' display of authority in these three areas. And then we will conclude by considering our response to what we have seen. First then, Jesus displayed his authority in his teaching. Verses 31 and 32. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Jesus, as his practice seemed to be, was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. Maybe some of you have been to the ruins of a second century synagogue in the city, in the little town of Capernaum, on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And some say that that second century synagogue was built on what is seen of the remnant of the synagogue foundation that would have been there when Jesus actually carried out his teaching that is described here. He astounded them by his authority. The religious teachers of the day typically taught by quoting other Teachers, You might say they, they taught with derived authority. But we could say Jesus taught with original authority. It wasn't just that he didn't, he didn't quote other experts in the law. No, it was that Jesus' teaching came with the very authority and power of God. Because Jesus was the true Son of God. What an astonishing thing it must have been to be there, to be present in his public ministry and hear him teach. The Gospels recorded in, in Mark 1, Mark tells us Jesus taught with authority and not as the teachers of, a, of the law. And that was the same reaction that's recorded in Matthew 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus clearly spoke God's word with a conviction and power that amazed the multitudes who heard him. They had never heard anything like it. Often, people who come to faith as adults have a similar testimony about the power and authority of God's word. Of course, if you've come to Christ as a child, you know that from a child, the authority and power of the word. But maybe someone has heard or 
heard the Bible preached and taught and had gone to church and even read the Bible in some way for years, but then the Spirit of God works with power in their hearts so that the Word of God penetrates in a new and living way. And they are struck that this is the Word of God. What an amazing power and authority God's Word has. When we were in England a few years ago, we visited Blenheim Palace, which is the massive ancestral home where Winston Churchill was born. And one of the best rooms of the Torah that I thought, in addition to all the beautiful giant rooms that are so wonderfully decorated, was the final room of the Torah, which had been made into the Winston Churchill room with a display of items about his life. And in that room, they had stations where you could push a button and put on headphones and listen to any of his great speeches during World War II. Speeches that he gave during Britain's darkest hour. Uh, And as you listen, you can't help but think what an amazing thing it was for Churchill to be able to rally the nation over these radio addresses again and again as the bombs of the Nazi Blitz fell upon London with such darkness and discouragement, night after night, here was Churchill, a man speaking with conviction and authority. And it was very helpful for the nation to endure. But we might ask, how much more so the power and authority and conviction of the proclamation of the Son of God? The very Son of God proclaiming the gospel. And we can say that this authoritative proclamation is still to be the foremost ministry of the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, as we look at the end of our text in verse 43, we see that Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. The crowds apparently want Jesus to stay. A very different reaction than Nazareth, who wanted to put him to death, as we saw last week. They wanted him to stay, and certainly a part of that reason must have been that it would be great to have a teacher and a miracle worker around all the time. You wouldn't even need health insurance. It was great. But Jesus didn't allow that. He rejected that. Jesus saw his primary focus as proclaiming the good news of the kingdom throughout Israel and that same priority of the wide proclamation of the gospel is still to be the priority of the church. And so for you and for me in a day when our culture no longer even believes that there is such a thing as truth, we are called to believe the word of God and to lovingly and graciously speak the word of God on the basis of the authority of our God. Jesus' teaching was with authority. Secondly, Jesus displayed his authority over the spiritual world. In verses 33 to 37 and also verse 41, he's teaching in the synagogue and verse 33 picks up what's happening. It says, in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon and he cried out with a loud voice, ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Luke goes on to describe how Jesus rebuked him and cast him out of the man, and the man was made well. This demon is unable to bear 
the presence of Christ. And so, through the man, he cries out with this message. And essentially, he's saying, Jesus, leave me alone. It reminds us of James 2.19, where James writes that the demons believe and tremble. We could translate that word tremble as shudder. They recoil from the light and the glory of Jesus Christ. Many today would say that there are no demons, that what we read here is simply a reflection of the ancient society, which they would say wrongly attributed mental illness or psychological disorders to demon possession. But clearly the Bible sees these as two distinct things, maybe sometimes confused. Demon possession is oppression by a fallen angel who is seeking to cause spiritual and possibly physical harm. It is a real thing. It is a real evil that was especially frequent, we conclude, during Jesus' public ministry. Jesus had come to destroy the power of the devil, and it seems that the powers of darkness were especially active, and in a sense they clustered in opposition to the work of the Son of God on the earth. And all that Jesus needed to do to defeat these demons we see throughout the Gospels was to speak a word. Luke highlights that in verse 36. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? Jesus' word had spiritual authority. Reminds us of Luther's, a mighty fortress is our God, where in one verse it says, one little word shall fell him. That certainly reflects our text. But why did Jesus silence the demons, both here and later on in the day, when again they're confessing him as the Christ? Well, even if what the demons said happened to be true, which it was, Jesus did not want them to be the ones saying it. And demons or Satan may at times speak the truth or the half-truth. When you think of it, the devil quoted Scripture to Jesus in the third temptation in the wilderness, as we saw earlier. But demons or Satan never speak the truth out of loyalty to the truth or with any intention of leading people to believe the truth. The demons were not shouting that Jesus was the Son of God for the purpose of giving rightful glory to Jesus Christ or worshiping Him in a right way. No, they were, they were shouting it for a wicked purpose. They were causing a commotion and trying to oppose the work of Christ in whatever way they could. Have you come to destroy, destroy us, he says. Really, that was, that was a shout of defiance against Christ and his rule. The demon knew that Jesus would eternally condemn him someday. We know that the demons and Satan and all his hosts will be cast into the lake of fire on the last day. It was often believed that the exact nature, knowing the exact nature of another another person's name somehow brought mastery or control. And we don't know if that's, that has something to do with why the Jesus, why the demons kept saying Jesus' name and who he was and saying they knew who he was, the Holy One of God. But it reflects Spiritual opposition to Christ's authority. That kind 
of vehement spiritual opposition teaches us that whenever the gospel is preached with authority, there will be spiritual opposition. We shouldn't be surprised about this. Throughout the history of the church, whenever the gospel has come with power to a new people group or in times of revival, there is intense opposition. And even if our even in our, our own increasingly post-Christian nation, we see increasing hatred for those who claim to stand for God's word and for God's truth against the evils of our day. We see it reflected. There are some startling accounts during the Great Awakening in 18th century England of mob violence against the early Methodists. And as you think about it, here were people, believers, who were simply aiming to worship God in their places of worship and simply seeking to tell the gospel and to do good to the poor and to live holy lives. And they were often physically attacked. And it was a, if at times Satan rose up with fury because his kingdom of comfortable religious apathy in the church was being challenged by revival. Brothers and sisters, we must not be surprised by the world's opposition to the gospel. There are spiritual powers, there are principalities and powers behind worldly and earthly opposition, and we must not hate those who might hate us people who might be opposed to us. Jesus tells us to expect opposition and to actually love our enemies. That is the calling of the church. But this truth that we are seeing here in our text, that Jesus holds all authority, all spiritual authority over this opposition, this truth should give us great encouragement and hope. No matter what happens in our culture and society because the word we proclaim comes with our Lord's own authority. And therefore, our Savior defends that word with His almighty power and makes it fruitful for His purposes. And as we preach the word proclaiming the forgiveness of sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit makes that gospel the power of salvation to those who be- believe. That is the promise of Scripture. And ultimately, there is nothing that the devil and his demons can do to stop or thwart the power of God's Word. Jesus displays His authority over the spiritual world. But thirdly, Jesus displays His authority over the physical world in His healings and other miracles. We see this in verses 38 to 41. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she arose and began to serve them. This is Simon before he is named Peter by Christ. And probably Luke doesn't describe him anymore because everyone in the church knows who Simon is is. And his mother-in-law was ill. This was probably medical language for a potentially dangerous situation with her health. But Jesus heals her again with a word. And 
Immediately, she gets up and begins to serve. That's evidence that this was a miraculous healing. She was strong enough to do that. And showing that Jesus has divine authority over the physical world. By Him, all things hold together. Well, word of this healing quickly spread, we read, And at sunset, all kinds of people from Capernaum, from the town, came bringing people who needed to be healed. We can just imagine all the kinds of things Jesus must have healed. And demons were cast out of some of them. Presumably, they waited till sunset to come because sunset was the end of the Sabbath day and they didn't want to break the rules of the Sabbath day, apparently. So they waited till the Sabbath day was over to come. And Simon's house becomes a house of healing where Jesus, we're told, heals every one of them. Again, giving evidence that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. He is no mere man. His miracles attest to the the truth of what he proclaimed, to his claims to who he claimed to be, the Christ, the Son of God. But they also demonstrate his compassion. His love. These are not just like uh, magic stunts that a magician would pull off. These are deeds of mercy that meet real need. But miracles are not the ordinary way of God's working in this world. They cluster around three times in history. The giving of the law, the prophets, and the New Testament era with Christ and the apostles. And we all tend to use the word miracle too loosely. The biblical teaching is that we are invited to pray for healing, which God sometimes graciously grants in this life. But we should also give ourselves to the normal means of medicine and so forth. And it's presumption and not faith to avoid these normal means and to expect miraculous healing. We also must realize that healing is not guaranteed by God's will in this present life. And full healing awaits the life to come. And so in the meantime, Christians must trust their faithful shepherd and Lord to do his work in our lives, even if it means in difficult suffering. Many of you are aware of the ministry of Johnny Erickson, who has now been a quadriplegic for 50-plus years. And in the early years of her injury, she had many people come and pray for her for healing, that she would be miraculously cured. She even had Billy Graham come and pray for her, and he came and did so, but all to no avail in the sense of physically being healed. And she has stated that it hasn't become any easier for her to be paralyzed in this way as the years have gone by. And so she talks about how she actively faces discouragement by faith in Christ, her Lord. We might think, well, wouldn't it be a wonderful demonstration of the power of God to the world for someone like Johnny to just be miraculously healed now after 50 years? But... It's very unlikely that that is God's purpose. In fact, Johnny has stated that she long ago stopped praying for healing, but she eagerly awaits the healing that will come in glory. And the testimony of a believer seeking to trust the Lord in suffering may be even a more powerful testimony to the authority 
and grace of Jesus Christ than if a miracle would happen. Think of that. You can bear witness by trusting Jesus Christ in your trials, in suffering. I loved what the choir sang. Trust and never doubt. Jesus will surely bring you out. That doesn't mean he'll perform a miracle every time you want one. He never failed me yet. He is faithful. He will keep us to the end. However mysterious his ways may be, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. We sing that hymn and we think of his purposes which we do not fully comprehend in this life. And so what can we say by way of conclusion to the authority of Jesus Christ? Well, the only right response to Jesus is to put your faith in him and to willingly give your life to his gracious rule. Verse 43, when Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God elsewhere, that's the first mention in the gospel of Luke of the kingdom of God. And it's going to be mentioned many times. The kingdom of God, what is it? The kingdom of God could be boiled down to this. The the kingdom of God is the gracious rule and reign of Jesus Christ in our lives. And the kingdom of God has come, but it's going to one day come in completion and fullness, and every knee will bow. But until that time, the day of salvation is here, and the gospel goes out, and the kingdom of God is proclaimed, and people are invited to receive the King of Kings. What do you do with the eyewitness testimony of the Bible that recount Jesus' miracles, his authority over the spiritual world, his teaching with power. Everyone who hears the Bible or reads it in some way has to do something with this. The reason Jesus refused to stay in Capernaum, we're told, is because he says he had a wider mission. He was on a mission. He came not just to be the Savior of Capernaum and to heal all their diseases all the time. He came to be the Savior of all Israel In fact, he came to be the savior of the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus was and is the true king who came with mighty authority. But remember that he also came in lowliness and humility and sacrifice. He says, I came not to be served, but to serve Has there ever been a king who has said that? He came to serve. He came to die. King Arthur is a legend, an interesting one. King Jesus is the one who gave his very life for you and for me. The king giving his life for enemies. Have you received the gift of eternal life? from the king? And have you given your life to follow the king? To give your life, to submit your life to his good and gracious rule, whatever he might bring into your life, whatever problems or heartaches, to trust in him and know that he will be faithful. Amen. Amen. Father, We want to do what the hymn, what the anthem says, to trust and never doubt. But certainly we struggle in many ways. Our faith is weak. Lift us up, O Lord. We pray that you would 
plant your word deeply in us that we might remember who Jesus Christ is and remember who we are in union with him, our loving Savior, our Shepherd, our King. We pray in his name. Amen.